Well, if you'd like to take a Bible or a device and turn to Mark chapter 4, 5 even, and if you don't have one and would like one, just raise a hand, and I'm sure the stewards uh, will gladly bring you a Bible, so just raise a hand if you'd like a Bible so that you can follow, because uh, we're convinced that this book that we have in our hands or on our phones or whatever actually is God speaking to us. It's a powerful word, and we want to listen carefully. So Mark chapter 5, we're going to be picking it up in verse 21. And if you've been with us in the Mark series, you'll know that we've seen the awesome power of Jesus. For example, in the miraculously stilling that wild storm on the Lake of Galilee, which raised the question in the disciples' minds, those who were with him in the boat, at the end of chapter 4, verse 41, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Well, keep in mind that awesome power of Jesus that's just been demonstrated as we read from chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, this is back to the western side, the Jewish side of the Lake of Galilee, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who'd suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he'd entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? 
The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, let's pray and ask for God to help us understand what this means and how it applies to us. Father, may the words that I speak and the thoughts that we think be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do you ever have a sense of desperation? I think most of us would answer, well, yes, from time to time, I do feel a bit desperate, but maybe you're good at hiding it and no one would know what was going on inside. But if people could see what was going on inside you, they would know that you're pretty desperate. Maybe you're in a very difficult relationship that you feel is never going to be resolved ever, and it's deeply painful. Or maybe you've been hit by a devastating crisis. It might be an acute crisis, a very sick child who is on the point of death, as is the case with Jairus in verse 22. He comes to Jesus and says, verse, verse 23, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And you can hear that note of desperation in his voice, this upstanding pillar of society as he prostrates himself publicly in front of Jesus and begs him earnestly to come and heal his daughter. It's an acute crisis in his life. He is desperate. Or maybe it's a chronic crisis, a, a long-term thing, like this woman with the permanent bleed for 12 long years, the entire lifetime of Jairus's daughter. A bleed which would have ruined her life. It would have ruined her life religiously. She would be excluded from taking part in a gathering like this in the synagogue. It would have ruined her marital life, her social life, and it clearly ruined her financial life. She tried all the doctors, all the specialists that anyone could recommend, and she'd spent her entire life savings on them and ended up any better? No, worse. Desperate indeed. And in her desperation, she comes up with this, well, this plan, you see, in verse 27. She'd heard the reports about Jesus, and we know from reading the first four and a half chapters of Mark that Jesus had amazing power to heal anybody who came to him. There was no question about his ability to do it. So she'd heard about this, and she came up behind, verse, this is now verse 27, came up behind Jesus in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. I mean, it feels very superstitious, doesn't it? But look what happened. Next verse. 
Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood, which had been flowing for 12 years, dried up that moment. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. You know how sometimes we know things in our bodies. We know what is going on. She knew it. She knew she'd been healed. And strangely, we read in verse 30 that Jesus is conscious that power had gone out of him. So we read in verse 30, Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? Power going out. It's not something probably we have no idea of. I certainly don't, can't empathize at all with what it means to have power going out from you. But remember, Jesus was different. He, although he was one of us fully human, he was also the son of God. He had power. And somehow, Mark thinks it's important for us to know that he felt that power had gone out. So that then his turning to the crowd and saying, who touched me, makes sense because he knows something has happened. And it's something to do with power going from him to somebody to help them. Now, of course, his followers think it's the most ridiculous question to turn around in a jostling crowd of people bumping into you all over the place and saying, who touched me? And that's the point they make, isn't it? They say to him, verse 31, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? It's a, it's a ludicrous question, is their implication. But Jesus is adamant. And in verse 32, we read, he looked around. In fact, the, the original, the Greek, has an imperfect tense. He was looking around. It's a continuous thing. He kept looking around. Somebody here touched me. Who, who was it? He, he was not going to stop looking around until he found out who it was. And then the woman comes forward. She can't have got very far in the pressing crowd. And she now comes forward in fear and trembling. And presumably, she'd hoped to slip away quietly through the crowd and not to anybody take any notice of her. But now she feels she must come clean. And we read in verse 35, I beg your pardon, verse 33, she fell down before him and told Jesus the whole truth, her whole story. And Jesus' words to her are quite wonderful, aren't they? In verse 34, Jesus then said to her, daughter. There's only one other place that we have recorded Jesus calling a woman by this name. Now, we've no idea of her age. We know Jesus was roughly 30. Was she a young woman? Was she an older woman? It doesn't matter. Jesus includes her as family. It's a, it's a lovely expression, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And it seems he's wanting to make clear to her that it's not actually touching his garment that did. It's not a magic trick that made her better. It was actually because reaching out to touch his garment was an expression of a confidence in Jesus. It wasn't the fact that it was a piece of cloth. It was being worn by Jesus. It was connected with him. It's faith in him that he's trying to make clear is the key. And so she's told that she should go in peace and be healed of your disease, a permanent healing. And of course, that was within Jesus' power. She's restored to health and to society. 
from which she's been so long excluded. But for Jairus, the delay must have been excruciating. His daughter is dying. Every second counts. It's almost like dialing 999 and actually getting an ambulance quickly for something that looks like it could kill your child. The ambulance comes, you're blue-lighted to the hospital, and then the driver sees a little old lady who's fallen off her bike, stops the ambulance, gets out, goes to see if she's all right, has a little chat, she talks about her life story, and inside the ambulance you're thinking, what is going on? Well, for Jairus it had started so well, Jesus had hadn't taken much persuasion. Could you come with me? My daughter is dying. She's at the point of death. Please come and heal her. And Jesus goes. But then the distraction, this woman. And then the message comes. The message he'd been dreading, that his daughter has now died. Jesus is still talking to the woman, it seems, while he was still talking. In verse 35, the message comes. What does Jesus say? Well, he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And now, if you were Jairus, I wonder what you'd have made of that. What? How can you say that to me? My daughter's just died. Well, when the small party arrives at Jairus' house sometime later, Jesus dismisses the professional mourners with the comment in verse 38 that the, the girl is asleep and not dead. Which again, they, we get recorded their instant reaction in verse 40. They laughed at him. What a, what a ridiculous comment to make. Look, she's there, she's dead. We're professional mourners. We know a dead body when we see one. And incidentally, the professional mourners were the people they went to. Like, you know, if there's a death in the family, what's the first thing you do? You, ring, you find an undertaker. And you ring the undertaker. You've got to get the professionals on the job. Well, in, in that culture, you didn't ring the undertaker, but you got in the professional mourners to make a, a proper expression of grief around the death. And Jesus says, you need to get out. You need to go home. Send the hearse away. And his response is beautifully simple and yet quite extraordinary in verse 41. Taking the girl by the hand. She's dead. Taking the hand of the corpse. He says to her, Talatakumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. He's talking to a corpse. But what happens? Well, instantly, she gets up and she begins walking around. And then there's the usual, apart from the, well, the, the the translation, overcome with amazement, it's, um, uh, it's the, the word we get ecstasy from. It's the verb and the noun put together. She was ecstatic with ecstasy. I mean, they, they were just amazed at what they'd seen happen. The mother and father in particular, and I guess the three disciples too. And then that normal charge to keep silent so that Jesus' mission is not diverted into a healing bonanza. So what do we learn? Well, let me suggest three things. Well, one main thing, and then three particular points. The main thing that we learn, it seems to me, from this section of Mark, is that the answer to desperation, 
And that's the question we're considering this morning. The answer to desperation is a simple confidence in the power of Jesus to transform our situation and our world for that matter. A simple confidence in the power of Jesus to transform. And there are three particular lessons I want to draw attention to. Number one, do you notice how Jesus stops stops to deal with the marginalized outsider with great love and compassion. I don't know if you consider yourself an insider or an outsider. In most realms of life, there's that feeling, isn't there, of am I an insider or am I an outsider? And I guess most of us go about feeling in most contexts we're probably outsiders. Don't you have that feeling? It's not really an insider and probably an outsider. Well, Jesus loved to reach out to people who felt they were outsiders and to draw them in. So I don't know who you are. Well, I do know who some of you are. But please don't think that Jesus has no time for you. No, he, he has time for you, even though you may feel a real outsider as you listen to me speak right now. Now, these two people we meet here, the, the Jairus and the woman, they're in times of desperation, one acute, one chronic. And it may be that you're in a time of desperation and you're wanting to reach out to someone or something to help you. And let me just say Jesus is the one who is interested in you and can help you. Now, it may take desperation to bring you to your spiritual senses. It may not. You may come to them without that. But whichever way it is, be sure of this. Jesus will not turn you away. He's interested in you. Even if other people are thinking, how long is he going to spend with this person? No, he cares about you. That's the first thing we need to learn. Secondly, Jesus delights to respond to faith, even if it's mixed with superstition and fear. In verse 34, it seems that Jesus wants the woman to know that it's not the physical touch of his clothing that has healed her, it's her faith in him, however muddled that faith may have been. Because what matters about faith is, is not how you express it. Can you express it really clearly? Can you articulate it? Um, do you feel it very strongly? What matters is where you place it. Now, some people say, don't they? Oh, I wish I had your faith. I, I don't have, you seem to have faith. I, I'm not that kind of person. I don't have faith. To which, of course, the answer is rhubarb. Um, we all have faith. We all trust some people, even if it's only the bus driver to follow the bus route. And if you came on the bus this morning, you trusted the bus driver, didn't you? To follow the route from where you picked up the bus to where you wanted to get off, the, and not to deviate from the, the route. So the issue is where you place your faith, not how strong is your faith, how you feel it, uh, whether you're clear on you're going in the right direction. So, for example, if you go across the road and, and you think, I need to get the bus to Kingston after, after this. I need to get to Kingston. No, I, you're not, maybe you're not familiar with the area. So you ask someone, which, is, which side of the road do I need to stand on to go to Kingston? And they assert very confidently you need to stand on this side of the road and get the bus that says Ealing. That's the bus that will take you there. And they speak with such confidence. And they seem to be such a kind of together person. And oh yes, they've lived in the area for many years. 
that you believe them and you stand with great confidence on this side of the road and you get the 65 bus that says Ealing and after about half an hour you ask someone, so, so are we near Kingston yet? And they tell you the awful truth that you've got on the wrong, well, you've got on the right bus but going the wrong way. Or you might meet someone who says, well, I, I don't, I don't really um, live in this area, but I've just seen a 65 go bus, and a bus go past, and it said Kingston on the front, and it was going that way, the other way. So I think that's probably the bus you need to get, the one that says Kingston, it's going in the other direction. Now, they may not be very confident, but if you trust them, your trust is well-placed because you've trusted in someone who is pointing you in the right direction. You may think, well, I, they didn't sound very confident. But it's the right bus. Now, you may not be completely sure about Jesus. There may be lots of questions in your mind about who he really is, whether he can really help. But if you put your confidence in him, even if you can't express it so clearly as others, even if you don't feel it so strongly as others seem to feel it, if your trust is in him, you're going in the right direction and you will arrive at the ultimate perfect destination, which isn't Kingston, I'm afraid. Sorry, Kingstonites. Jesus is ultimately the only one to trust. He's the only one with complete integrity and knowledge and power and compassion. He's the one to follow. He delights to respond to faith. And he has awesome power to deliver on his promises. So Jesus stops to deal with marginalized outsiders with great love and compassion. He'll stop to help you if you will ask him. He delights to respond to faith, even if it's mixed with superstition and unclear and a bit of fear in there. If you will trust him, he will not only help you, he will rescue you. And then the third thing to note is that Jesus' delays are not limitations of his power. You might think this is a rather strange point, but let me explain. Jesus' delays are not limitations of his power. Again, as you go back to the story of Jairus, he must have been so stressed by Jesus stopping to deal with this woman. He must have found it so hard to trust Jesus when the awful news that he most feared arrived that his daughter had now died. It was too late. It was all over. And he must have so struggled when Jesus said to him at the news of his daughter's death, don't fear, only believe. How could he? Of course he was fearing. How could he believe? Well, Jairus, why did you go to Jesus in the first place? Was it not because you thought he was the one with the power to heal your daughter so that she might live? That was his request. Come and lay your hands on, on her so that she may be made well and live. He's the one with the power to give life. Isn't he, Jairus? Isn't that why you came to him in the first place? Well, what... Jairus had not factored in was the power of Jesus over death itself. Now, I don't know how you respond as you read these two stories of the woman and of the girl. 
and her father and family. If you're not careful, you might read this and think, oh, well, um, is this saying that if we follow Jesus, we should never go to the doctor? We just ask him to heal us. Or if one of our loved one dies, that we just ask Jesus to raise them from the dead and wait for a resurrection. I have met Christians who've taken that view. Uh, not a very sensible view, I would suggest. Because as you read through the rest of the New Testament, you, you discover that this matter of healing and resurrection is, is a question of timing. And it's really important to get the timing right. That's why I made this point as the third thing to notice, that Jesus' delays are not limitations of his power. It's all about the timing of the delay. It really came home to me one day, quite a few years ago, when I was an assistant minister in St. Albans. And there was a lovely family in the church who had a 12-year-old daughter who got a brain tumor. And it was a serious one. It was an aggressive one. Now, she was a very sweet Christian girl. She had a faith. And there was... Some people were saying, well, we should pray that she be healed. And we were all praying that she should be healed. Some people claimed it, that she was going to be healed, but she wasn't, and she died. And I remember at her funeral, my boss, the, the minister, Peter, took this very passage of the girl being raised to life here, Jairus' daughter, and he read it. And I remember when I heard him read it, I, I thought to myself, oh, Peter, that's a bit... That's a bit risky, isn't it? Because uh, in the story, the girl gets raised to life, and here we are at the funeral of a 12-year-old girl who has not been raised. So how does this fit? And I remember he, he spoke so beautifully and so helpfully in explaining that actually what happened to the girl in Mark 5 was a demonstration that Jesus is the one who has the power to raise the dead. And therefore, although we were saying goodbye to this girl in the church who had just died, we did it in sure and certain confidence of the resurrection of the dead, that this was not the end of this girl, that she would be raised to life because she was trusting in Jesus. And Jesus has the power to raise the dead. So death is not the end for the believer. So what Mark is doing here, what Jesus is doing here, is showing us the power of Jesus to defeat disease and death. And if we follow him, yes, sure, we'll still get ill and we'll one day die of something unless Jesus comes back first. We're all going to die of something. And that's why, in a sense, funerals, um, I'm going to be speaking at two in the next two days. And they're great opportunities to confront people with the reality of our own mortality, that we're all going to die one day. And we need to be ready for that. I don't know if you were at our evening a, a couple of weeks ago on dying and death. I thought it was a terrific evening with, with Angie Vincent and Philip Shannon. And the two things that I have taken away from that evening, one was Angie said, do you remember how most people die sooner than they thought they would? Just think about that for a moment. The chances are you and I will die before we thought we were going to die. Quite a thought, isn't it? Very few people on their deathbed say, I'm amazed I've lived this long. Um, 
And the other thing was what Philip Shannon said. That was Angie's point that I picked up, that therefore we all need to be ready for the day of our death. We need to be ready now, because it could be today. It's a sobering thought, but that's the reality. But Jesus, when he returns, all disease and all death will be banished. There are no funerals in heaven. Now, you might have thought as we read this, why does Jesus say that the girl is asleep? Doesn't he know she's dead? Yes, of course, he, Jesus knows that she's dead. But he's, he's using the, the picture of sleep to make clear that it's as easy for him to raise someone from the dead as it is for us to wake someone from their sleep. Just give them a shake, speak in their ear. He doesn't need to shout, though. And he can raise someone from the dead. So where do you stand on this? Have you reached a desperate state in your life or not in desperation? Well, it doesn't matter whether you're in desperation. If you are, Jesus is the one you need to turn to. If you're not, Jesus is the one you need to turn to because ultimately you will die and you need to be ready for that day. So here's the answer to desperation. It's a simple faith in the power of Jesus to transform our situation, our future, our world. Are you trusting him? If you are, keep trusting him, whatever happens in terms of illness or death. If you're not yet, why not turn to him today? Let's pray. Our Father, you know our hearts. You know that at times we are desperate. You know whether at this very moment we're in a state of desperation about something or someone. Father, help us to turn to you, the one who has the power over disease and death, who cares about us, who reaches out even if we feel a complete outsider, who reaches to us with his compassion and help us to trust him even in the delays and even if our faith is not very clear and not very strong help it to be in Jesus for his name's sake Amen <laughs>